Hello, and welcome to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. Hiya, hiya. How's it going? Grant, are you Grant, let's uh, discuss Grant. some some sad topics again, shall we? Yay. My More turn. On, My turn. More on the horrifying history. Yes. So um, of oppressed peoples. Exactly. Go. So uh, we're coming up on a new topic, folks. And uh, as per usual, we take turns. Katie had a great double turn with La Amistad series, which was so informative and I think really penetrating the issue on many different sides is just really yeah. informative. And we're turning things to Canada, to the northern of the North American continent, but we're going into another disenfranchised population, that of the uh, Native Americans or Na Native Canadians in this case, yes. um, indigenous people to the North continent. So we're going to be engaging in a two-part series. And when I when I decided to do this topic, I'd been t I'd been looking at this for a number of months, and I hadn't really dived into it deeply. I'd heard about this story of the Highway of Tears. I don't know how familiar you are with the story. Yeah. Um, as a as a true crime enthusiast, <laughs> I've yeah. heard many a horrible story. It's yeah. really come into focus in the last like 20 years in terms of like documentaries and Definitely. public awareness. And yeah. it's a huge story. And so it's about this stretch of highway in British Columbia um, that winds through about 450 miles of beautiful, but sometimes bleak up country. Yeah. And for more than 50 years since the late 1960s, there have been many murders and missing persons cases, notably among the indigenous community, especially native women. Um, yeah. And this, like we talked about with the Atlanta child murders and other strings of, of cases that go unsolved, um, it haunts the local population um, generation upon generation. And around the 1980s, the stretch of highway became known as the Highway of Tears. Harkening back, of course, to the Trail of Tears. So it's right. pretty Pretty and awful. This discussion is going to be a mirror or a foil to what we know as Americans of the American experience of dealing or treating or cultural genocide of Native people. But this is through a Canadian lens, which for me is very, I know much less about it from the jump. Yeah, I've, I've, I've only really uh, begun to understand it in the past few years. Um, I've been to Canada a few times and there are are definitely um, beautiful memorials and sites uh, portraying indigenous culture. I, I find being from New York City, I just, I was never around it very much in the few cities I've been to in Canada. It seems that there's much more of a presence or an attempt at a presence. But at the same time, you know, to me, I was like, oh, wow, so much more respectful, whatever. And only recently have I learned that just as bad as the United States that yeah. in terms of the treatment of indigenous peoples. And we're not talking about, you know, the 1800s we're talking about fairly recent events. Very much. So, so. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a rough story and, and very important because there are people who still have lots of unanswered questions and it, it's really sad, but incredibly important to talk about. And so I think you, you had told me you, you're going to give us some background, some context as well on yeah. this history. So, you know, it, I thought of this could be a two-part episode in and of itself, but the treatments that I had seen and read about the Highway of Tears all talk a lot about the precursors to the 
the environment in which the in, the the highway of tears takes place yeah and like anything else like we've worked in museums together where do you where do you begin the tale where do you yeah. start the story right yeah. and so i think it's important for us to know that the highway of tears is a law enforcement problem a true crime problem as we understand it today yeah but it's also a post-colonial problem um a colonization problem oh yeah uh, <laughs> in which aboriginal people are continually living with the after effects and impacts of colonization so mm -hmm. um we have a very good friend who is based in british columbia where this where this province takes takes place That's and right. you know from what i've learned from this person you know there's more in my mind of a confronting or forthrightness in terms of schools with first nation people. And there's a different, there's a shift in the culture that, 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 that speaks to us, but you know, British Columbia is in the Western corridor of North America, just like the West coast is in our country. And so there are very different perspectives in Arizona or California or Washington state than of course, there are yeah. in Massachusetts or New York or Connecticut, but British Columbia is so far from it's where so we far. are it's culturally it's other, it's just another yes. world. Yes. And you're absolutely right. You know, whatever, what we've perceived as forwardness is only recently gotten gains mm -hmm. um, in terms of this story. And so it's a really expanding tale for a lot of us. Americans get a lot of flack for being very Americocentric. This is very true. <laughs> so we're expanding our, we're expanding our horizons by going one country north and learning we're more. We're doing it. <laughs> we're doing it, you guys. So of course, I think it goes without saying that there should be a disclaimer here at the beginning of the discussion that we're going to be dealing with some really difficult topics. Katie yeah. and I are well-read and we are museum people. We're used to converting and distilling historical topics. We are by no means experts in this particular area. No. So please forgive us if we're speaking in draft mode. Um, we have the best of intentions <laughs> um, as we go forward. And I think it's also important to recognize that um, for as much as we live in an intersectional world, we are still very much a world of labels. That is how human beings operate and how they categorize the world. So when it comes yes. to terms and lexicon language, um, we'll be referring to the people of Northern Canada as indigenous people, as native people. Um, unlike Americans, many Canadians and Australians refer to these people as First Nations or yes. Aboriginal. Um, yes. But even the word Indian is accepted among many of these populations. In many of these populations, the word Indian has been reclaimed. Um, there's this idea of pan-Indian beliefs, pan-Indian culture, um, but yeah. we're not going to use that word. We're going to use that word sparingly. It usually refers to words, um, especially in the context of government action, because those mm -hmm. are those are talking about laws that were enacted over 150 years ago. Yeah. So those terms are sort of out of date and such. Um, so what is the Highway of Tears. It's a stretch of Highway 16 that runs from Prince George, which is in the inland of British Columbia, all the way to Prince Rupert, which is along the Pacific Ocean shore. We made it to the West Coast. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> Prince Rupert or bust. Um, <laughs> That's what I always say. <laughs> and, you know, I had a good friend who told me years ago, he used to, he used to uh, motorcycle through Canada. And I thought, I've never even thought of that. And it's oh, a beautiful yeah. stretch of country. Um, it's very remote. It's very rural. It's rich in natural resources, lots yeah. of forested areas, kind of place that we in the city get away from, get away to. And I, I think what where we do find crossover here in terms of like true crime stuff is the Pacific Northwest in the United States is known for its serial killers. Yes. <laughs> because it's it's very British Columbia, um, Oregon, Washington State. They are all very much like that. There's a lot of woods. There's these long stretches of highway. And so kind of, unfortunately, a great place to commit 
crime. Yes. And to to disappear people. That's right. Yeah. Exactly right. And it was really only in grad school when I understood 20th century history, historical research and studies, and how much of the 20th century history is that of the automobile and the interstate highway. How that is the so true. That is the great thing that defines time. And we've talked about this in terms in terms of the um, uh, Dead Horse Bay episode, in which yeah. the highway is stripping through you know disenfranchised communities. It's linking these disparate towns and states together, and in many cases these disparate provinces. And you're right; it creates a literal super network in which you can get from one town to another to hunt, mm-hmm. and you can find places to disappear someone. So. The yeah. rise of the highway, interstate highway, is completely commensurate with that of the serial killer in both America and Canada. Yeah. So it's Yay. very much linked. Very much linked. <laughs> yeah. So again, we, it's all the cars stink. It's not about cars. It's about people. Okay. And so there are so many other issues. The area is remote. It's rural. There's poverty, of course, drug abuse, yes. domestic violence. Um, and Native people are affected by these issues disproportionately than the Canadian-European population. Absolutely. Um, and this is the legacy of the residential school system, which is what we're going to be talking about for the duration of this episode. Oh, the worst. Yeah. So the residential school system created a intergenerational trauma that many people looking at the Highway of Tears say this is the milieu in which these people are getting lost, caught up. Their family units are eroded. They are othered. They are left behind in society. And so that creates a sense of who is an attractive victim for a roadside killer. So we see a breakdown of the tribal fabric, the mores, the culture of Native people, uh, and the kinship network, which is so strong before colonial contact. Yeah. Um, the more I learn about Indigenous people in this continent, it's humbling and sobering, and we cannot help but draw comparisons to their original state versus our current state today and how we live with the environment and live with each other. Um, yeah. What's really sad about the Highway of Tears is that women are often targeted because women need essential services more often than men in terms of going to the doctor, um, you know, needing sort of services. And these essential services are located in population centers. And the population centers are so, so far from the reservations Mm. and reserves where these people live. And so what do they do? They don't have a car. They're impoverished. They hitchhike. And that, of course, is a recipe for being abducted and killed. Yeah. So it's really dark. And this history of the hitchhiker is important sort of in the residential uh, school system story as well. Um, yeah. And so I was uh, I have part of my notes here where we're supposed to nod to the other serial killers of note with the highway that those familiar friends of Ted Bundy, William Bonin, the freeway killer. Um, or is it Bonin? <laughs> William Bonin? Yeah. Am I, I really don't know him that well. <laughs> He's a really scary <laughs> gay killer. <laughs> Oh, see, that's why he's off my radar. Oh, uh, yeah. I focus he's, on the ones that I'm very scared of for myself. They're so terrifying. <laughs> they're so terrifying. Um, so the Highway of Tears is unique in this story in that the, the victims are mostly indigenous women. The crimes are largely unsolved. The story is underreported and underknown. And this is a complete, you know, this is a complete fault of the Canadian government and the law enforcement in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that many people don't know the story exists. And it, I mean, the greatest crime of all of this is you took away their land and that wasn't enough. Then you wanted to force them into assimilation. Yes. But not actually care for them. 
and they've lost, like you were already saying, so much of themselves, so much of their culture, um, living in abject poverty and everything else yes. and becoming an incredibly vulnerable population. And it's just the the hits just keep on coming. You know what I mean? It's like nothing has nothing has stopped. Nothing has been good. No. Since the minute Europeans step foot. <laughs> That's right. And this is where I had in my notes a section about where I would break down colonial conquest in so many lines. And you basically did that. But we know welcome. <laughs> we know that in North America, beginning in the 16th and 17th centuries, you've got these traders, you've got these explorers, you've got these emissaries of various governments. They're seeking land, they're seeking mm -hmm. treasure, and they find people living here. The Aboriginal peoples, you know. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh boy, this isn't virgin land. This isn't India. Um, they they quickly find that there's you know peaceful relations with the newcomers, but that turns to conflicts as it happens here in New York and New Amsterdam and all over the United Everywhere. States and Canada. Yep. Um, and so you've got this forced removal of First Nations people. Um, not to mention the fact there's so much disease that the Europeans bring that wipes out massive swaths of the native. Oh folks, yeah, which is always Nothing forgotten. Like a smallpox plague. To That's it. Take out some peeps. You know, and you were you were hitting on this before, Katie. That you know, in our New York perspective you know we don't see native new york so much right you no. have to kind of work to see you have to go upstate to see native new york it's not really down in the five boroughs no um, i mean out here on long island everything is named after indigenous yes uh language and there's there are some um indigenous groups out here you've got the shinnecock community very strong out there in long island we do we definitely do um but like you really have to go way out like you're saying yeah. and so it's the same thing with going upstate so yeah. yeah and you know i think again checking my own bias and my own experience you know i think the dominant narrative would have us think of the native people in past tense in this part of the country to say yeah. they are they are gone they are no longer here they were removed they were dealt with they were exterminated and you know there's a lot of modern scholarship and you know museological thinking there's this exhibit in the um uh, museum of the american indian F uh, what the hell is it called Downtown Manhattan. Yeah, downtown Bowling Green. Um, so, <laughs> there you go. So at Bowling Green, and the the crux of that exhibit, Native New York, was we've always been here. We intermarried yeah. with folks who were European. We intermarried with people of color, and we assimilated. We adapted. We retained parts of our culture and our identity, but we are still here. Um, yep. And they continue to call these sacred lands home. Uh, and there's a big move right now in the museum world to you know, have living land acknowledgements and to sort of acknowledge this history in a way they've never done before. Even if you're an art museum in the middle of Manhattan, everybody's offering land acknowledgements in the beginning of meetings and discussions. Oh, and yeah. They've quickly been sort of, you know, reduced to tokenism if they're not done in a way that's respectful. Um, yeah, no, it's true. I feel <laughs> like anything, yeah. anything I go to, anything I'm involved in, it's, it's the way that meetings start. Yes. Like, it really has become... I, I fear that you're right, that it is leaning towards tokenism in the way that, you know, we would sing God bless America during the yeah. seventh inning stretch. Like, what does this even mean at this point? Right. Without, without context. Which even is the Pledge were... of Allegiance, if said lazily, sounds pretty good. But a land yep. acknowledgement, a land acknowledgement can sound pretty in poor taste if it's just like, well, you know, this is a land of the Lenape people. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> Let's so, start our board meeting. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's more like the dread of the meeting. <laughs> yeah. But that happened yeah. overnight, which is amazing. That happened really, really during did. COVID. Yeah. Um, which is pretty, pretty impactful. So again, this is, this is the world catching up way too late to all of these stories. Yeah. Um, yeah. So 
you know, what happens to most folks in Canada or in the United States is that people are forcibly removed or they're relocating to what are known as reserves or reservations. And we know that those reservations were far from desirable land tracks, um, mm -hmm. often didn't have natural resources, didn't have running water, you know, didn't have anything attractive about them. And they were completely defunded, unfunded, underloved for the better part of the last 300 years. Um, and, and, no, and no opportunity for more for betterment never to thrive never that's not what it was for it was just let we're gonna put you here because we don't know yeah. what else to do with you yeah it's like a, it's got a fema vibe it's like we're not mm -hmm. here we're not supposed to be here for a minute but here we are 30 years later 80 years later 100 years later and we're still in living in these structures um yes a temporary Correct. solution um and there's that's a, lot a great of comparison there's a lot of government inaction and indifference on this subject to this day and i think a lot of us who interpret different stories of different groups and identities, you know, for example, Katie, if we're talking about the issue of slavery or people who are enslaved, you know, we might say to ourselves to reconcile to ourselves in the quietness of ourselves. Well, you know, I'm descended from Irish Americans. I wasn't really involved in that. <laughs> we're so we're so quick to say well, that wasn't really my folks. Well, why do or, I have? To I didn't do it, right? And so, but I think it's it's if we just talked about intergenerational trauma. We have to talk about intergenerational responsibility as well, I think, to an extent. Yeah. And I think that's a very hot, hot sort of thing that people, you know, are very polarized by. Um, Extremely so. so. It's very hard. No yeah. one wants to take on the weight of the responsibility. Of that's right. Essentially the genocide of a people. And this is why it's unremembered because yeah. it's painful. And it's so painful. It forces those difficult conversations. And you hit on the subject of assimilation before. Yeah. Um, and there's a quote here uh, I have from the literature. Underlying these arguments was the belief that the colonizers were bringing civilization to savage people who could never civilize themselves, a belief of racial and cultural superiority. And that's at the core of all this. Yeah. And, you know, again, that's very much in line with what we've been talking about during the Amistad episodes as well. Is this like you are less than and we are doing you a favor yes we believe in yeah. abolition but also you should be christian yeah <laughs> try to be like us be like yeah. the white people let's not restore How you to your savage state you want to go back to your culture god no yeah which i think in in the mind of you know a racist would be oh it's inherent they're always going to go back to being savages, right? Yes. Rather than, no, you, this is a human being with a culture that is valuable. That's you just right. don't fucking value it. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly it. Um, so we're sort of in talking about a cycle of genocide and exclusion and a m absolute myriad of other human rights abuses um, that we don't have time to dive into completely. But in the 19th century, there's a real ratcheting up of cultural assimilation um, that was expedited by what you might call systems of social conditioning. We're trying to change people's behavior from the ground up, with starting with children. Um, <sighs> always the poor children. So the United States awesome. and Canada both have a legacy of these institutions, which are at the root of the economic backdrop that creates the hellscape that is the highway of tears. So we're going to talk on the Canadian Indian residential school system, as it is known. <laughs> so what, what is it at its core? It is a boarding school network for indigenous youth in Canada. That makes it sound so nice. <laughs> sounds like a like a brochure. Ooh, yeah. I want to go. <laughs> that sounds nice. Um, 
they of course, yeah, were designed to be nice from afar. Um, oh yeah. The schools were engineered to separate children from their parents, to create family disconnection, um, to allow for an environment in which cultural reprogramming could take place. This is very insidious, in which the native youth would be indoctrinated into the dominant culture. And we've heard of this. We know this story it exists in America. We've heard about you know the Christian schools. It's the same thing happening in Canada. It um, also happened in Australia with the. It um, did. Aborigine. Did you ever see uh, read the book Rabbit Proof Fence or see the, no. the film? No. It's exactly the same. And they they created essentially this rabbit proof fencing that mm. was also meant to be fencing to keep kids in uh-huh. and separated from their families. Because this, again, this ridiculous notion that we have to save you from yourselves yes. by making you white. <laughs> exactly. Making you a white Australian, a white Canadian. Yeah. Um, and you've uh, touched on something that there's a lot of commonality in all of these countries, what they call the Anglosphere, English-speaking yes. countries. So Canada, the United States, Great Britain, uh, Australia, and even places mm-hmm. like India could be considered part of the Anglosphere because they were so colonized. South Africa comes to mind. Yes, exactly. So there's a lot of these places, and you see a lot of these common threads throughout, yeah. attitudinally, socially. And the British system is so much more deeply entrenched in Canada. Um, but I also didn't necessarily realize how much Canada was kind of willfully given up by the British in a sense in mm-hmm. the, in the, in the dominion era, apparently around the time of the American civil war, the British are like, this colony is just too expensive. It's, <laughs> it's like, they were kind of like, we're good. Like it took a hundred years and they were kind of like soft on it. Like, well, I, I guess we can let it go. Like re- retain the queen as head of state, but you can do your own <laughs> confederacy. Honestly, this is, this is a lot. Yeah. I've got other things going on. We'd right love now. to pass the bill <laughs> on half the shit. So, but the British system is really still, still there. Um, so we're trying to bring the native youth into the dominant Canadian culture, the Canadian identity, which is part British and part French, which is so interesting. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause you've got, you know, the Canadian Confederacy, which comes in the 1860s is like these disparate provinces trying to, create one country and there was always so much strife between the British folk and the French folk and they were somehow able to put it all together to say hey let's if, if we can put ourselves together we can build a highway literally a yeah, transcontinental railroad highway and connect ourselves and share resources and like this will be good we've been a colony for a long time there are a lot of parallels with uh the United States and Canada in in that way too where like we at some point before the United States was the whole of the United States, a lot of different countries were involved. Yes. Here, right. And so you can see, still see kind of the flavor of some of the original European ancestry. Oh, yeah. Depending on where you go. Like a great example is uh, Louisiana. It's still so French. Correct. So much of that going on. That's right. And on the Canadian side, Quebec, I mean, Quebec is not cool with english not like, at all they no. the Quebecois want, do not when like you the go english, there yeah. they want you even if you're not good at it they want you to at least try to speak french it actually i think when i went there i remember legally they have to have signage in french of course like you can have it in english as well but it has to be in french and this is, is something that is so strong with france mainland France as well. Yes. They have like, they're very strong on culture. 
um, strong is a, strong language. is a loaded word, right? With secularism, yeah. it gets kind of racist. But this idea yeah. that there's like a living arbiter of of what it is to be French, and yes. I'm sure that extends into New France. There's this great book by Colin Woodward called American Nations, where he mm-hmm. he outlines like the geopolitical countries of the North America. Yeah, and New France is the only one that has two locations: one in Canada and one in the United States, and you know New Orleans. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it's endlessly fascinating. Like we're in New Amsterdam, you know, we're in, we're in you right. know, Dutch country. Technically we still retain, <laughs> you know, me our Dutchness. We're so Dutch. I'm Dutch as fuck. Dutch as hell. <laughs> Don't ask me for a loan. I'm really, I'm really tight with the purse. Super rich. Yeah. Blitzkies on everything. <laughs> yeah. Love education. Right. I love waffles. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> so Canada's confederation, British Columbia enters late in the confederation era. It enters in 1871. So now Canada is a self-governing country. Britain mm-hmm. is no longer holding the treaties with the native folk. Now this new Canadian government is holding the treaties and enforcing the treaties. And they quickly, you know, don't make any uh, humanist steps in any right direction here. They completely screw over yeah. um, the native folk in this sense. Um, they focus on land use, on health care, on services, and they are obsessed with dictating Indian status, what they define as Indian status. So what we're talking about the, um, the forcing laws that come into focus when uh, Canada's first formed. And there's something really fascinating here that they defined Indian status as someone, if a native person and a non-native person married. So mm-hmm. if a white Canadian and a, and a uh, an Aboriginal person married in Canada, the status of the children would follow the agnatic line. So it would follow the father. Oh. So if your mother was native, your children would not be native. If your father was Canadian European, the children would not be considered native. That per- is that terrible. So also just so weird you know i'm still in you know amistad (laughs) mode in my head where i'm like versus here where you only needed to have a drop of african-american blood in you to be considered black and therefore less than and we are giving so much weight to the blood quantum whereas in this situation we're taking every step to eliminate even if you have the blood even if you're half indian yeah you're not if it was if it was your mother which is fascinating. And also from what I know about the native cultures, many of them were egalitarian and many of them were matrilineal. Or Very matrilineal. To be matrilineal. So yes. that is a real slap in the face. So your kinship and lineage style. Yes, is completely put up. So it's also discriminating against women, de- uh, you know, disempowering indigenous women. Um, mm-hmm. And I just I can't imagine having cousins in the same family where some are considered Indian and some aren't. You know what I mean? Because that's how it would I be. I mean, that's what how the it would fuck? Be. And also like just to <laughs> I don't know. There's a very good chance that you probably still look like you're an indigenous person. And yet you're supposed to walk around and say, no, no, I'm actually white when that's not even how you identify. Like that's, it's just so. This is what, you know, (laughs) this is what the power structure would have us believe is that despite what you see, you know, Johnny is really great at football and he loves, you know, the maple leaves Mm -hmm. and hockey and (laughs) whatever. Loves Um, hockey. (laughs) Loves hockey. Stereotypes. Loves um, Molson beer. Loves, Anybody yes, loves the, this? yes, um, all that stuff. So, but it's, uh, the, I just, I can't, it's hard for me to wrap my head around it because it goes against everything that I have ever learned about in terms of, you know, keeping races separate 
is the most important thing of all. And yeah. then if once they do intermingle, then you're all tainted. No one's good. Right. This is this erasing. Is like a different approach. This is erasing. This is saying that, you know, there's a supremacy in the races and that we don't care if you have half a if you have a drop or you got 50 drops. That that they look at more as like dilution is yes. how we solve this problem. This yes. is how we erase you. And if we say you're no longer Indian, you're no longer Indian. Woo. No matter what, no matter if your Woo. mother is native and you go to powwow and you you celebrate and you you embrace your culture, legally you're you're not included. Um, That's a different type of. It's insidious. very different from the blood Awful. quantum we know in the United States for sure. Um, there yeah. also were and, a lot of. I wouldn't say one is better than the other. <laughs> that one's God, a little no. more. That one sounds a little more like. Isn't this great? <laughs> Like trying to convince you that it's a good thing versus clearly like, wow, that's fucked up. <laughs> yeah, there's one that's trying to preserve and document, albeit in a racist way. And there's one that's trying to eliminate, you know, and expand one, one population. This is my interpretation. Um, so there's a number of focusing legislation that comes into view. One that was very famous was the potlatch ban, which was in effect from 1885 until 1951, which criminalized the practice of indigenous cultural rituals like sky, sky dances, um, coming of age rituals, all of those kinds of things were outright banned across the country. And this was seen as a way of really exterminating the cultural practice the cultural heart of indigenous culture indigenous people didn't have paper they didn't they didn't have western concepts of history they didn't write things down they passed them down orally it's and an oral you, tradition yeah. you silence that tradition right it is just destroying it which is a which is a sad horrible death the residential schools we're going to be talking about were enabled by the indian act of 1876 which still is in force and still determines the way native people interact with their government today in Canada, which is fucking wild. Yeah. 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 The fact that these legis yeah, the laws are not the same. The residential They've been res amended. Residential school done. Um, but God. the law is still on the books. Um, are you kicking cats under there? You hear that? Yeah. I'm trying not to. <laughs> I'm trying to position my feet just right. So I'm not affecting anybody else's space. Um, <laughs> doing, doing great. My feet are getting hot in my slippers. I'm really uncomfortable. <laughs> okay. It's better now. Oh, cats. Um, so the residential schools were very scary to the native people. They resisted. They tried not to have their kids go if they could. Um, there was a revision of the law that said children were required. They were, it was mandatory between the ages of seven and 16, then the ages of yes. six and 15, they kept changing it, but basically they're really rounding up kids in the countryside and forcing yeah. them to attend these schools. And where are the schools? Hundreds of miles away from home. Of course. They're, they're cherry picked and built in such a way that they're so far from the reserves mm -hmm. where these people are living. Um, they're literally the only option. If you live in remote British Columbia in these sections, there's no other schools. Oh, there's a school that was built just for you folk. It's just 500 miles this way. And mm -hmm. don't try to get a pass parents. You can't visit. No, no, no. Nope. All no kinds of, yeah. All kinds yep. of hateful policies. Um, you know, you have to get a pass. You know, you can't, you can, you can only speak English to get a pass. If you know, you can't speak English mm -hmm. in this, you can't not speak English in the school. Um, really awful. What was terrifying to me is that like in the United States, these schools were run by churches. <laughs> and we did mention this. Maybe it was during our Catholic series. Yeah. Where we talked about how it's part of the Yellowstone spinoff. Um <laughs> Yes. 1923 that's right 1922 yeah yeah whatever sure whatever year that was and it it gives a good 
representation of it in the United States, at least. Yes. You can you can tell just the terror of (laughs) being pulled into a place like that, being separated from your family. And do you know how how young you would be when you would be pulled into one of the schools? As young as seven. Fuck. So yeah, between the ages of seven and sixteen was the requirement, and then it did it did dip younger. It went like to age fifteen and maybe to age six. So it moved around a couple times. But the I was interested to learn that the churches there's a confederation of churches that exist in this in this sense. There's Anglican churches, so the Church of England, Catholic churches, Presbyterian, United Church of Canada, and maybe one of one or two others. Those all have a stake in the more than fifty residential schools in Canada. Yeah. So it's a mix of all these different faiths and different, you know, flavors of Christianity. Um, Mm -hmm. And so a rigorous system of, you know, social control was instituted. The students were prohibited from speaking their native languages, which leads to language uh, deterioration. They're forced to speak English and French. As I mentioned, the parents really couldn't visit. They had to get passes. There were all these rules. They were always had to have paperwork, very akin to like voter right issues with black Americans in the South. Yeah. Um, there are horrible stories of physical abuse, sexual abuse by instructors, by indifference and negligence from older students on younger students, forced yeah. conversions into Christianity. Lissai. <sighs> and of course, these buildings were built in a robust building period, and then they quickly deteriorated. And there was malnutrition, squalid conditions, disease was rampant, you have poor sanitation, so you've got things like influenza, tuberculosis, outbreaks like galore happening in these schools. Now, the schools were funded (laughs) by the government, and they were administratively run by the churches, but the schools were still underfunded, and they relied on the forced labor of their students to maintain their campus properties. So because it's prison. It's just prison. prison. (laughs) And it's just like the mental institutions of the 20th century, where it's like, oh, they're doing occupational therapy, and they're, you know, mowing the grass. Mm -hmm. It's good for them. mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was seen as- it was seen as training, occupational training, mm-hmm. or therapeutic, all these kinds of bullshit lines. Mm-hmm. Um, so these kids are not only are they f- separated from their parents, they're alone, they're in terrible conditions, and now they're being forced into manual labor. As young as seven. As young as seven. Great. Great. Now, this next element is very controversial. The Resources I've seen are split in terms of the numbers of this, but we understand that this did happen, that many students were forced to apply to be enfranchised by the Canadian government. So a lot of this was news to me, that up until 1920, Aboriginal people in Canada didn't have the right to vote. (laughs) So crazy. Yeah. Doesn't surprise me. What? But yeah. So they don't have the right to vote until 1920. So many students were forced to apply to the Canadian government to say, I renounce my Indian status and I wish to become a Canadian so I can vote, so I can have property, so I can have all the rights, rights, benefits thereof. I I don't even have the words for that. (laughs) It's terrifying. 
And some of the resources say this happened only a handful of times, um, but there were laws, gradual enfranchisement laws and other laws where this was a tactic, where they were mm. literally trying to stamp out Canadian history and reality or you know native history by saying these people are no longer Indian. We delete their status. They are now a Canadian citizen. Yeah. You can't be two things at once, right? That's the idea, I guess, is that you can't hold space for two identities. You have to stamp out one, kill one to have the other. Yeah, I guess. I guess that's how I, I would define that. Yeah, it's yeah. fucking terrible. It's really terrifying. Um, and um, once students graduated, no matter their status, um, they were still subject to discrimination. And like you said, they still looked native if they wanted to try to pass as Canadian. And so right. they found themselves unable to connect with their elders because they had lost their language and they'd been disconnected from their culture. But right. also they couldn't pass in the white world either. They were not white enough. So right. this terrible tension exists between – they're caught between two worlds. And uh, there were – critiques about the residential schools that really didn't come to light until like, you know, the 1950s and sixties, which is way late in the way story. Late. Um, and there's one story that comes into focus. And I think it's wise for us to bring some personal context to this. Talk about one person in, in this story to kind of focus, Always, to focus yeah. our analysis. And yeah. that is the, um, a story is written in um, McLean's, which is a Canadian magazine in 1967. And it's called The Lonely Death of Cheney Wenjack by a re reporter named Ian Adams. Um, okay. Cheney or Charlie Wenjack uh, was a First Nations boy. He was of the Ojibwe people. And he ran away from the Cecilia Jeffrey Indian Reservation Residential School uh, where he boarded for three years, which is in Ontario. And he tried to walk 600 kilometers, which is more than 370 oh miles, God. back to his home. And mm. he died of exposure on the way. Ugh. And this young boy was 12 years old. Um, no. Oh, my God. So it's heartbreaking. And this story to was resonant to me because it's the same calculus of the Highway of Tears. I have to get so many miles from my from my from from place A to place B. The only option I have is this lonely road. In this case, he's trying to hitchhike, but he probably, you know, just ended up just walking it because he didn't want to be caught. Um, yeah. So, you know, this is the same fate albeit of more natural causes, exposure and, you know, starvation um, as opposed to people who are kidnapped and murdered. But it's the same thing of this lonely person walking on the road and how yeah. they're reduced to that experience and what that means. So that's a really powerful one. And there's a, there's a beautiful uh, concept album that was done a few years ago about uh, Cheney uh, Wenjack, which is really quite inspiring. Really? Yeah, uh, uh, it's pretty pretty interesting. A lot of this stuff is like really seems to be reverberating now in the cultural memory. Um, like a yeah. lot of things happening right now in Canada on this subject. So, all told, it is estimated that 150,000 children were placed in these schools over a hundred years. God, the estimates vary, but as many as three or thirty thousand students died of disease at the schools. <laughs> Do you know, because I've I actually thinking back on it now, I I don't know if I've ever learned sort of what was in it for all of these Christian uh institutions. Like why? Why'd you do it? Yeah. Why were you involved? That was is... it just that same missionary bullshit? 
That is a great question. I think about when the schools were at their height, and that was in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And so I think there is some kind of world turning moment happening here. We, is there? <laughs> we, we know that Germany and What's places, Germany and Italy and Japan were not the only places where there was fascism, where there was re- racist bigotry and, yeah. you know, real uh, social engineering of a massive scale. It was happening in the United States. It was happening in places yeah. like Canada, you know, and churches were in bed with a lot of these ideas. Yeah. Um, in this culture war. So I can't give you a real answer to that question, but um, the churches have, have been long in this game, a numbers game, you know, like they, they reason the yeah. literature talks about some reasons why the schools were so stuffed with people's because they had quotas to keep their funding. They had to be like, well, if you get this many conversions this month, you'll have your funding for this quarter. So cram those bitches in and you know let's get let's crank up the numbers who cares how unsanitary it is we need these conversions really sad reducing folks to numbers um so there were 80 schools in the 1930s 80 of these residential schools the last school the last school closed in 1997 i knew about that yeah i couldn't remember when it was if i thought it was actually the early 90s 97 is so late not good (laughs) I was 14. That's too late. (laughs) And so with that reality, 1997, the last one, which dovetails completely with our institutional histories and mental health, all Mm -hmm. that's the same era, deinstitutionalization. Now, 30 years on, we're getting the full understanding of what happened. And many of the dead were, the families were not told that their loved one had died. And the bodies were not returned to the families because the schools did not want to bear the cost. So they were buried in unmarked graves all over these sites. Now, I mentioned, remember, I mentioned 80 different schools across the whole country in the 1930s. So an unknown number of students who died were buried in unmarked graves. The record keeping, of course, was slapdash and terrible, which is why they think it's between three and 30,000 who died because they don't know. Um, the many grave sites were built over, they were forgotten. And the literature I found locates three discoveries in 2021. Um, oh. And two of them are in British Columbia in BC. Two- oh, wait, I remember this. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. 215 graves are discovered at the Kamloops Indian Residential School in British yep. Columbia. 182 are found at the Kootenay uh, Indian Residential School in British Columbia. And 750 graves are found at the Maryaville Indian School in Saskatchewan. So they're using ground penetrating radar. That's how they're finding these unmarked graves. It's incredible. So the system worked in a sense that it proved completely successful in disrupting, altering, changing the transmission of indigenous culture and practice across generations. Oh yeah. It it did that. Um, And uh, in the genocide studies world, if you're causing harm, mental harm or physical harm to a group of people on purpose, it is considered genocide, even if you're not exterminating them outright. So this is seen by the international community as cultural genocide. It is. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what else you could think of it as yeah. because it, it offers no benefit whatsoever. I mean, it co- it costs the government money, too, to do this. Yes. Yeah. You know, it, it benefited no one. Right. And... I read something like there are 615 bands of native folks in um, Canada today. And at one point there were thousands, 
thousands of dialects spoken between those bands. Um, and today, or probably hundreds, I would say, hundreds more than 600. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But today those languages are suppressed by this system and they're sure. endangered because the youth didn't learn them and the elders who died who retained them couldn't pass them on to anyone. Um, so, of course, there are very interesting terms that come to mind here, but they call this cultural linguicide. This yeah. idea of I was this, just going to say, there's a term for that. Yeah, the murder you, yeah. of language, which is very sad in our homogenized, you know, global world. Um, yeah, you can like look up, I, there's like websites and lists and everything that list like the 10 to 20 most endangered languages. Mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of them are indigenous languages. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, this is something I come across in, in my research. It's uh, pretty powerful. Um, yeah. I bet. So, and the death of language is a completely linked with the death of culture. Um, completely. Of course. Yeah. And the same legacies of this post-traumatic stress, alcoholism, yeah. suicide, substance abuse, self-harm, intergenerational trauma are, are linked to this system. And they're clearly being passed down generation upon generation in the same way former enslaved communities, free black people deal with this intergenerational trauma manifesting in different ways over the ensuing years. Yep. And that's tough to internalize that. Oh yeah. So this this is really interesting when I'm thinking about you know um, uh, intergenerational trauma because we tend to think of it as something that's passed down personally, but it it need not be. There's a there's a sense of cumulative stress and grief in the Aboriginal world. Um, yeah. With this loss, this cultural disruption and a memory in their collective of powerlessness and loss. If your parents, your loved ones live in that reality, that is going to be passed down to you, no matter how loving and how well-intentioned of parents they are. If they Absolutely. feel powerless, if they're, if they're living in a system of oppression, um, they're going to pass that on inadvertently. Um, and there have been many studies that help shed light on this yeah because it helps to have science to back it up sure um, <laughs> always <laughs> so there were 127 survivors um uh, from the schools that were studied uh as late as 2012 and it revealed the study revealed that 65 percent uh, have been diagnosed with ptsd 21 percent have major depression seven percent have an anxiety disorder seven percent have a borderline personality disorder and more than half have criminal records horrendous terrible yeah um so the intergenerational effects are you know uh felt to a great extent um over time yeah because then it's also it's not just like understanding the trauma of your ancestors it's that then they pass down the alcoholism yes the poverty all these other things these these cycles that we inherit from our parents from their yes. parents etc so it adds to the weight of it all and it doesn't help that you know for native peoples and african americans it's not like everyone is like we're so sorry mm -hmm. we're gonna do everything we can Let's now help you. Yeah. no and there's people who genuinely still think you're a savage and garbage yeah. you know so that how could you possibly be okay you know, when there's when the attitudes around it still exist, when there had when not even I don't know, ten percent of what should have been done since 1997 has been done. Correct, 
to, to try to, you can't fix it. There's no fixing this, but improving yes. what has happened. And I don't want to cast a, a thought that people are predisposed to be this way or to forever be in this cycle. The study no. suggests people are, are at a higher risk. If you are a descendant Correct. of a survivor of the residential schools, you have a higher risk for these for these factors. Not that you're going to be that person, right? Yeah. It's, just- it's again, it's very similar to if you have a loved one who has alcoholism yes. and you are raised in the household with an alcoholic, there are very good odds that you yourself may struggle with addiction or you will have the great fortune to overcome that and go completely in the opposite direction. And that is certainly the case for people who've experienced types of generational trauma. That's it. So there's something that came out of all of this in the last few years called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is Mm -hmm. pretty humbling in terms of their sweeping recommendations that they've made. Mm Mm-hmm. And the historian John Milloy uh, described this process, you know, as the goal was to kill the Indian in the child. And so they, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission really hits this idea of this cultural genocide. And the political action that has been garnered from this movement has been palpable. Um, in 2008, the Prime Minister of Canada officially apologized. Um, mm-hmm. Many of the faith leaders, including Pope Francis, in 2022... I remember. Apologized. Just happened. Acknowledging the genocide. Pope Francis said, I ask forgiveness in particular for the ways in which many members of the church and of religious communities cooperated, and not least through their indifference in projects of cultural destruction and forced assimilation promoted by the governments of that time, which culminated in the system of residential schools. This is powerful stuff. Very, um, yeah. And uh, it's it's just beginning, really in terms of coming to bear with this. And, you know, oh, yeah. if if this is so underreported and so underknown, <laughs> the Highway of Tears is, is, a, is a mere externality of all of this. Uh, but it's treated in the same way with a lot of indifference. I don't know if you know this, this story, because this is another thread of this nightmare. There was a very good podcast a few years ago called Finding Cleo. Okay. And um, it was by a reporter who um, I believe she herself had family who was indigenous to Canada. And so they were trying to find Cleo and Cleo had been, but she had been born on a reservation. I believe her family was incredibly poor and she ended up getting taken away Mm. because it was pretty common practice to approach indigenous people, mothers or fathers, whoever was in main custody of the child to say, listen, your hands are full here. Let us take them. We can get them a great life. And they would literally adopt them out to people in the United States. Wow. So like total removal from, and like literally a woman who is her, I think her mother was battling with poverty, with drugs. And so rather than saying, hey, we're going to get you the help that you need. It's like, you know what? Let's just, we're just going to get your kid and we're just going to like get her out of here and like, good luck. Wow. And like, she didn't understand either that she was signing over her kid permanently or that she was going to leave the country. So it's this amazing story where they Mm. try to figure out what the hell happened to her and they go searching for her. And it's, it's amazing. It's a really well done podcast. And it's just, it's another example of this horrible treatment. Mm. 
awful. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to yeah. check that out. In light of all of this, I I did try to find ways to understand and commemorate this under the story better. Um, The National Day for Truth and Reconciliation is celebrated every September 30th. It's also known as Orange Shirt Day. That's right. And so the story of that is a survivor of the residential schools recalls vividly her grandmother buying her an orange shirt for her first day of residential school. And when she gets to the school, the shirt is like unceremoniously, tragically ripped from her. And it became Mm. a symbol of her oppression. And again, think about being reclaimed. Now the orange shirt is worn by people acknowledging this day of truth and reconciliation. Um, Yep which I also think is just a, a very confronting and forward way to talk about it. a day of truth and reconciliation. Could we not use a day or two like that in the, oh, yeah. in this part of the country? <laughs> <laughs> and so there's a couple different landscapes to, to understand this better. Um, in 2016, I don't know the status of this project today. It was announced that the former Mohawk Institute residential school would be converted into a resi- uh, education center um, with exhibits on the legacy of residential schools. And this is located in Ontario. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah. So the idea is that this place will be a reminder of colonization and racism that were the hallmarks of the residential school system and really bringing light to this dark chapter in Canadian history. In 2017, there was a reconciliation poll that was erected at the University of British Columbia, UBC, mm-hmm. at the Vancouver campus. Um, and apparently, I haven't seen renderings of this, but it's got thousands of copper nails, which represent the children who died in the poll, oh, and lots of wow. carvings, and it's really quite avant-garde and interpretive. So um, that sounds really interesting. Um, yeah. And so there are many articles to check out online um, and uh, a lot of documentaries you can check out on the World Wide Weeb. Um, (laughs) But this is just setting us up for what's coming, which is one of the legacies of the residential schools is what's the state of affairs in British Columbia, which have led to the Highway of Tears. Yeah. And I mean, this is so right now i mean you just read a that's the most recent quote i think we've ever read on the show from Pope Francis. yes exactly i know it's like i cannot believe the, we could have put video the there's recency like, of this is crazy exactly. yeah. there's t- there's tv and radio and everything from a lot of this story yeah. which is nuts which again is so comforting but it can be just as frustrating when you think about all the unresolved you know questions of history and these things never happen on a convenient schedule yeah because um, it's like we're too Society is too modern for this. This is in this is insane that this shit went on for so long. I know. And you know? there's polls that say like barely any Canadians really had an understanding of this, which is also scary. Yeah. The fuck? It's another situation where it's like when you think of all the batshit stuff that's going on in the United States right now, it's like how many people actually would vote for this? Right. Versus you're just you just created this program. And felt like this is what everybody wants. No, yeah. motherfucker. <laughs> and didn't give up after 15 years. Just kept going. Kept making it worse. Kept trying harder. Um, you know, ratcheted up the the cultural warfare. Uh, it's, it's hard it's, to come back from. It's a real big stain on the Canadian experience, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But no no government, no state is without its sins. And all it's of these not all maple syrup that, and beans. Goddamn you right, you know? <laughs> It's not all moose, okay? Just really being reductive. Very, very. Let's just, yeah. Let's just break it down, eh? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you know. (laughs) 
Sorry. Sorry, Canadians. We we love, we you. love you and we love stealing. I, we I'm love stealing Canadian. Canadians from for Hollywood. We love Absolutely. it. Absolutely. My family's in I still have family in Quebec. I love you guys. <laughs> and yet. <laughs> and but also Amy. What, what are you doing? Grow a pair. Um, the hottest prime minister. <laughs> that's fine. That's working on that's working on all cylinders for me. Yeah, no. Um, I'm good with that. Yeah. So this sets up for next week. And so next week we're going to dive a little more deep, deeply into the um, highway of tears story. We're going to talk about some of the cases, um, yes. some of the interesting situations in which there are several serial, serial killers in play, a lot of I copycat know. situations. So it's going to be more Woof. of a, a more of a traditional true crime moment that we're used to. I know we don't usually do super true. We usually, it, the times we've done true crime, like we know who done it. And like, <laughs> it's very, yes, weird. this is, yes. this is different for us for sure. This is different. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to tackling this with you. I am too. Yeah. Thanks so much, Luke. Great job so far. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens in part two. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of the Morbid Museum Podcast. Please remember to rate and subscribe and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Please follow us at the Morbid Museum on Instagram and on TikTok. Please email us at themorbidmuseum at gmail.com. And please consider becoming a more buddy today on Patreon. Until next time, we'll see you another for a gallery talk inside the Morbid Museum Podcast. Bye. Bye-bye.